From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys, what is up? It's four weeks in. Like, it's hard to believe. Wow. wow. Four weeks. Like we, I mean, I don't think anyone thought this was going to be lasting four weeks. And it may be going for many more weeks. Wow. I mean, we're, we have a stay at home order in Washington state through at least May 4th. So I've, yeah. we've got basically three, four more weeks at a minimum. And there's no guarantee that they won't extend it after that. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, I've been drinking a lot more. I've been baking. <laughs> I'm going to come out of this looking like a potato. <laughs> With a bad haircut, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, like it's just. Well, I will tell you, as someone who is balding, this is really bad. Um, because I'm not <laughs> I'm not at the stage yet in my life where I'm willing to go straight, like just straight bicket and like shave my head entirely. But so I rely on a relatively regular haircut to keep the hair I do have looking relatively organized, and we're not there. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting bad. I fortunately was able to. I got a haircut shortly before the kind of stay at home order came out. So we're so we're only about a week past my due date now. But who, but in another month, you might see a lot fewer selfies on Instagram. That's all Oof. I'm saying. Oof. I did the big mistake and uh last weekend was like, I don't know, man. I'm seeing like a lot of people go clean shave and I forgot what my face looked like without some hair on it. I'm gonna clean shave. And then I came out of the bathroom and my wife was like, I don't want to look at you. <laughs> it was so it was so bad. She's like, You look like you're five. <laughs> it's not the look I'm going for. Like, please don't ever do this again. And then I looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, yeah, I really actually do hate it. Like, I just don't. My face doesn't look good without some facial hair on it. It was weird. Yeah, I've told my husband that he has about a week left before I'm getting in there with the scissors. And I'm just going to have to do some work because it's starting to get pretty shaggy. Yeah, it's it's rough. I agree with you, Zach. I, I was very lucky. Like a week before this all started, I went and got a haircut. And I was like, cool. At least I got that haircut. Because my hair will start getting long and then uh, it starts to like curl. And so it'll start like it, it just gets it's not a good look. So it's <laughs> uh, it's it's good that we've like we're, we're keeping it where it is. But uh, yeah, I mean, this thing, who knows? I mean, it's just crazy. It's just really crazy. But I thought, you know, we would take the opportunity to be at the four week mark to talk about some stuff. I think that have come out of. Some ideas that really have come out of not only the coverage that we've been doing on the site, but also some of the conversations we've been having in the COVID conversations, um, you know, many episodes that have been running every day. If you have been listening to those episodes, by the way, uh, we'd love to know what you think. Drop us a line at podcast at com. We'd love to hear sort of what your thoughts are. If there's anyone that we haven't spoken to that you think we should, if you are someone you think we should speak to, also reach out. Um, we'd love to sort of like talk to as many people as possible and get as large a picture of what's happening in the total alcohol beverage industry as we can. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, we ran a piece uh, this week. Everyone's gonna listen to this podcast Monday, but so I guess the week before um, about, you know, sort of these, these historians, especially one at Yale, whose name now slips my memory, but I'm sure Erica, you know it. Uh, yes. I'm trying to think of what her last name is though. Hold, give me, give me one second. And I will <laughs> okay, cool. Um, who sort of is connected a lot of, uh, what happened after the 1918 pandemic and then the, the rise into the roaring twenties and this innovation, et cetera, to potentially where we could be now. 
Um, and then also we've had a lot of really great interviews where I think people have sort of said similar things that they wonder, like, is this going to be a behaviors change in terms of whether or not we, you know, start buying more alcohol online? Like, will people who downloaded Drizzly and mini bar, et cetera, for the first time, keep them on their phones now and continue using them post, uh, you know, social distancing. Um, I think Stephanie Gallo made a really good point, you know, that their research shows that it takes six to eight weeks for someone to start a new habit, right? So right now we're at four weeks. If there's something that someone started four weeks ago, it's only going to take two more weeks potentially to lock them into that habit, whether that be drinking wine, you know, at dinner every night now. Um, you know, I think what Mike said, the bartender from LA about this idea of cocktails to go, or even just restaurants in general, learning more about what their their license actually did allow that they never knew before, which I also thought was fascinating hmm. uh, in that interview is really interesting. So so for us, I thought we'd, we'd have a conversation of like, what behaviors do you think now that we're four weeks in will be with us post quarantine? We can have this conversation again, maybe in four more weeks when we're still in quarantine. But for now, what behaviors do you think will probably still be with us even when we come out of all this? I'll jump in. And uh, and that, that professor who we were referring to, so that's uh, Dr. Jessica Spector. So she's a Yale University professor. Um, and what we were talking to her about is um, the how the parallels between the 1918 flu pandemic and the roaring 20s and this huge um, period of innovation that followed and uh, a cultural renaissance of sorts are actually intertwined in ways that are overlooked. So that is an article that we'll be referring to probably as we're discussing here, some different ideas. You know, I, I think one of my biggest takeaways right now about how things will change from a liquor store retail perspective is, you know, there are so many people who beforehand, they loved Fresh Direct or Instacart or what have you. And that was just a regular convenience. It was part of their life. Um, And I think a lot of them just didn't know that they could do alcohol delivery in that way. But now that they do, I think that it actually will lead to a huge uh, change in the way that people interact with retail stores. So I think there's pretty big part of the population that may never set foot into a liquor store again um, and may just move on to online ordering completely. Yeah, I certainly think that's quite likely. And I think that the whole convenience that has been born out of this whole um, quarantine time really be a, a thing that that is a, a continued kind of motivation for a lot of people. So, so the idea mm-hmm. that, um, you know, in this period of time when you can only get, or for a lot of people, you can only get things delivered to your door, or at least it's considered unwise uh, to go out to the store more than necessary. We've all gotten used to the the groceries or whatever showing up at the doorstep. And while some people uh, may enjoy sort of the return to browsing and maybe in some other f- uh, fields that will be the case, but I think with food and especially with drink, you're right, Erica, I think a lot of people are just going to say, I know what I want. Why would I go to the store when I can place an order you know, I think a lot of what we're going to see about it too is is a lot of people moving to um, this sort of reservation mindset in general, where you make a reservation for something to be delivered or maybe for you to go pick it up, and it's just waiting for you. Again, this idea that we don't have to have, you know, we have the technology now to kind of create all of this convenience, and I just think few people are going to want to go back to a less convenient era. I think you're right. I think the other thing that's really interesting is unlike grocery delivery, where like you do have. I would say there's a there's a larger group of people. When you look at consumers of grocery or food compared to consumers of alcohol, and I know we've talked about this before, there's a larger group of people who like in food going to the butcher, going to the produce market, 
having a conversation and picking out that tomato or picking that steak. But in terms of alcohol, we know based on research prior to COVID-19, the vast majority of casual wine, spirits, and beer consumers felt incredibly intimidated shopping for alcohol. And part of that intimidation was the interaction with the person at the store, right? But now I think they're realizing, oh, I don't have to have that interaction that interaction at all, right? So now I can go online, I can do my own research, whether I read VinePair or I you know, ask some friends, I can then look for that wine and see if it's available digitally and get it delivered. And it feels a lot more you know, I feel a lot more comfortable with it than being tripped up if I have that conversation with someone and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking for this specific winery's Merlot, let's say. And then the person says to me, oh, we don't have that Merlot, but we have this. We think you'll like it as well. And then you start, you know, getting really nervous. Well, will I like it? Do I trust this person? Do I trust their taste? Right. And I, I think I think we will see more people saying this was just a hell of a lot easier. And I avoided that interaction completely. Yeah. And for, for drinks lovers like us, I think that feels really sad. One, because we love liquor and wine stores. But two, what about discovery? What about discovering new products? Like that, I think that is going to be a huge challenge for um, any sort of producers is how do you now get the word out effectively? Uh, if, if, People are going this sort of convenience route. They're ordering the same bourbon they like. They're ordering the same Chardonnay they like. And they're not really taking risks because no one's kind of giving them that hand sell. Ah, but see, here's where my uh, additional idea comes in. And I, I'm especially <laughs> curious, Adam, about your thoughts on this because it ties into the music industry. So I think there were a lot of people who, when streaming audio, streaming music came around, said, Oh, but you know, if you can just listen to the same songs you already always loved, why will you ever discover anything new? And what we found is that all these, you know, um, you know, this, the streaming services created um, algorithms to sort of derive from your playlists and the things you like suggestions, some of which are good, some of which are bad. And if you're like me and have a small child and some of what you listen to on your playlist is kids music, you get a really, really fucking weird set of songs if you just play your like daily, your weekly mix. But <laughs> what I think you're going to see happen is you're going to see more synergy between, let's say, the alcohol producing companies and distribution companies and delivery services and potentially, and I'm not, I don't think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not spoiling anything, I don't think, and I don't know that this is actually happening, but someone like VinePair, where in the future, you might be able to access the top 25 rosés list that VinePair is putting out from whatever app. And you can say, here are, here are VinePair's top, you know, we have their top 25 rosés, which one do you want? Here's maybe even the write-up. Now, I, I don't know that that will happen, um, but, I, but I think you're going to see more and more of this, you know, the sort of uh, discovery come from people who are able to connect their own um, on the whether they're a journalist or a sommelier or a, a bartender or whomever they're they're able to um, basically create essentially a drinks playlist or a drinks list or whatever you want to call it and instead of necessarily getting that those recommendations from them in person they're able to send that out to an entire uh, region nation whatever and say hey you like me you follow me and every week I'm going to recommend five wines and and I think there's a lot of potential for that and I think that's one thing that we are um, starting to see come out and I think you're going to see a hell of a lot more of it okay but here's my challenge I I have a challenge to this which is how is that different than uh, than James Suckling's notes or anyone else's notes that are already out there that are then incorporated into some of these apps already like what's the difference 
I think the difference for me is you you with those things you're getting about a you're getting a score and you're basically getting that score highlighted on the platform. But I think this is a little more about following like like what if you could follow um you know you could follow essentially LeBron on whatever this app is or you could follow us or someone else in between <laughs> um and get recommendations and maybe there's some sort of you know commission based system that encourages people who are who are sort of trendsetters to have their presence on these platforms. I mean look I'm I'm just a sommelier and a and a dude who does a podcast. I don't know all the back end of this. It may be it may not be an idea that works. Uh, but I do think that you know part of the difference is is that you know with someone like um, like a critic like James Suckling, I mean there are definitely people who just essentially do this already. They just take his scores and go to whatever you know wine shop or or online retailer. And this to me is just a little bit more streamlined. Um, and and that may or may not be a thing that matters to people, but I think it's one way to think about, you know, still having opportunity for discovery because, you know, as much as we, we said before that, and I think it's true that there will be some people who will be even more locked into their already mm. existing purchasing decisions. I think there's those people were going to do that no matter what. I think for people who like discovering new things, this is just going to be a new way to do it. And if you can marry that with convenience, that's actually maybe for a lot of people, like Adam was saying, a lot less intimidating than walking into a wine shop and talking to someone you don't know and getting their recommendations. You know, here you could follow someone who you like from either the field of alcohol or some other field and get their recommendations. And, you know, whether they're better or worse than the guy in the, or gal in the wine shop, I can't say. But I do think this is something we're going to see. So I think I agree with both of you partly. So I think Eric actually has a very valid point here. And I think that for the most part, the people who do run for convenience, right? So the person, I guess that typical person I was thinking of that like, they just, they know they like bourbon or they know they like Merlots or Cabernets, et cetera. That's really, they're, they're not totally into complete exploration. They just, they know what they like and they don't like the buying practice. Now I think they're going to, run to online. And I think some of these bigger, more well-known wineries, distilleries, et cetera, are going to benefit. Um, I think it's going to be not great in the short run, especially if we enter a recession for the smaller brands in the beginning. But I do think as well, there are going to be people in markets that loved to discover things that didn't think they had a lot of variety who have now recognized they could order from wine shops outside of their own state who will keep doing who will now keep doing that and that will benefit some of these boutique producers so mm-hmm. you know my my sister-in-law had the Pennsylvania state liquor authority not shut down their their stores she never would have realized she could order from master cuz she never just would have it, it never would have crossed her mind Right, she she knows that she can go down the block. That's Astor Wine and Spirits for those of you who don't live in New York. City. Yeah, sorry. So now she knows she can, and Zach, to your point, she does like the staff pick wines, and she likes the notes that the staff writes about the wines. She finds it more interesting. They also the prices are better, and I think she'll continue to be an Astor customer. Nice, because she didn't have that in Pennsylvania, right? So. She will, but I think that someone else, you know, maybe her next door neighbor wouldn't do that, right? It's just gonna be like, oh, I, I realize I could still, I could just order bulk, you know, I don't know, name a cult Napa cab, right? And I can just, I could order that and I'm just gonna keep ordering that and I'm not gonna explore. So I think you're gonna see it sort of benefit both, but I do think, at least in the short term, the more likely scenario or who sees the most benefit is gonna be what Erica's saying. Cause you're, you're seeing it now, right? You're seeing most consumers like run to these well known, producers run to these well-known craft brands and i wonder you know and and 
at least for now too, like that's the majority of like what you do find on a lot of these apps, right? It ha- you, like if you if you go on Drizzly or Minibar, you're not finding really great craft whiskey or really great small production wines. I think that depends a little bit where you are. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of it, because I mean, they partner with with liquor stores and whatnot and wine shops. And if you are, if they're partnered in your market with a shop that stocks a lot of interesting stuff, like they happen to be in Seattle, then you can actually get, I mean, I was surprised looking on it. Like I can get stuff that's actually really hard to find in a lot of liquor really? shops uh, <laughs> delivered here. Yeah. Um, you know, some like a little bit more esoteric, like Japanese whiskey and stuff like that. I mean, it's not cheap, but that stuff never is. But, but again, it really just depends on where you are and, and there are, the selection isn't always consistent and, and sometimes it's really deep in one category and a little bit hit or miss in others. But again, I think that's where this idea of, you know, if if these things become more connected to people and entities that would promote discovery and, and uh, learning about new uh, product, there might be impetus for some of these apps or a new app that doesn't exist or whatever to tap into that market. Because while well, you're right, obviously the big brands are going to dominate and they've dom- they dominated the pre-COVID landscape too. You know, they're on every grocery store shelf and all that. They're, they're going to continue to dominate. Um, but we're I think we're mostly interested in talking about some other subset of, of consumers for the most part, because they're the ones who's whose shift from in-person purchasing to online purchasing is going to be impactful to, yeah, these small brands. And if they are able to continue to discover and find new things um, and just move that online, I think a lot of them are going to appreciate the convenience. I agree. So, okay, let's let's keep it rolling here because uh, I think we've, we've beaten the online ordering to death for now. <laughs> One of the things I'm going to be very curious to see and – uh, talking to Josh about this a week in is Josh, you know, my co-founder at VinePair, um, was walking through the park with his dog uh, in Madison Square Park in Manhattan and saw this couple sitting on a bench drinking to-go dirty martinis they had bought from uh, the Smith. And he basically was the first one to say this. He was like, there's no way we're putting this back in the bottle. Like people have now realized they can go and buy really great cocktails from some of their favorite restaurants but it's a beautiful day and they don't want to sit in the dark bar and drink the restaurant. And they were out in the park with their dogs at the dog run drinking these dirty martinis. And I do think you're going to see not all states, but some states, especially in the sh- in the short term, because we're going to need to help these places continue to survive, to really kind of start pushing the to-go cocktails. What do you guys think? I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, look at, look at New York City restaurants. There's something like a million people in the service industry in New York City alone that are out of jobs. So when you see these restaurants and bars really start up full force, I think there will be so much pressure on the local and state governments to help support them in any way possible to help reinvigorate these businesses. And and I think what that looks like is um, some standalone, ready, ready to go um, type uh, offshoots, some delivery offshoots or pickup offshoots from some of these um, bars and restaurants. You know, in the article we just did about the 1918 Renaissance, uh, the 1918 pandemic and the uh, Roaring Twenties, one of the interesting points that Derek Brown point, uh, said to us was, you know, there is actually an innovative new concept called ready to drink in, sh- in Shanghai that Daniel Ann, who is a really well-known uh, Shanghai bar owner that he started recently. And this is a, he calls it a, a mix between a Cinnabon and a cocktail bar, which serves up these prepackaged cocktails 
cocktails. So like a Shanghai mule or a coffee Negroni and uh, also fruit juices that people can spike with like jalapeno to infuse tequila, things like that. And that these are all ready to go sort of, um, you know, it's a ready to go concept. That's the entire concept. And so I think that type of thing may be something that we see as people, um, as, you know, establishments are thinking like, hey, maybe I can't just only be on premise moving forward. For sure. And I think actually there's there's two interesting parts to what Adam was describing and what you were following up on, Erica. One of them is this thought of to-go cocktails and and sort of a, a brand around them. And we, Adam and I did a podcast a while back about canned cocktails. And, and at that point, we were really talking about them as products that were made in essentially, you know, some sort of... Um, you know, factory type setting. And what I wonder is if we're going to see a rise of essentially commissary bars. So instead of a commissary kitchen where you where you are you have a catering operation or or even a, a sort of fancy takeout operation, I wonder if we're going to see sort of commissary bars or even shared bar spaces open. Because I do think that one thing that's going to be interesting, especially in the short to medium term, uh, in the after sort of these social distancing and really extreme quarantines are over, is I think people are going to be a little bit hesitant to go back into bars. I think you're going to see people not necessarily wanting to be in crowded spaces with strangers, but they're going to want really, really good cocktails as they do now. And I think you're going to see some some existing bars and maybe some new ones open in a space that's really mostly dedicated to cocktail production as opposed to cocktail service. And I think if you can, um, you know, especially introduce some of the technological innovations that you're seeing, whether uh, that that Adam talks about in his upcoming interview uh, with Mike Capaferi from uh, Thunderbolt in Los Angeles, like uh, vacuum sealed cocktails, uh, canning cocktails on on site, those kinds of things are super interesting to me. And if you have a, a commissary bar, essentially, uh, that can do, deliver, uh, produce and deliver or you know, set it out for delivery, these kinds of drinks, I think that's a way forward for some of this industry, um, especially for this medium term period where I think yeah. getting people to go back into enclosed spaces is tough. The other thing I want to mention real quick is I also think we are going to have to reconsider our um, sort of public drinking laws and Completely. open laws in most of the country. Completely. Because, I, I mean... It's nice in Seattle right now, and I, we, my wife and son and I were walking through the, the local park with our dog a couple nights ago, and there were probably 15 groups of people scattered throughout the park, and all of them were drinking. And oh, yeah. you know that to some extent happened anyhow, but it was much more in the open than it had been. You know, not you know people were just drinking straight out of cans of beer, bottles. You know, they had bottles of wine out. You know, no one was trying to hide it. And I just think we're we're going to see in the same way that there was a, a you know to reference this piece that um, that was written last week. In the same way that there was a lot of social sort of permissiveness that came out of the the real, you know, sort of we may all die anyhow sense of 1918, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's going to be like, well, why is drinking a beer in a park actually that big a deal? Like, does it, act, I mean, they do it all over Europe. No one, it's not an issue there. You know, they do it in parts of this country and it's not mostly an issue. Like, why shouldn't I be able to have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever in public as long totally. as I'm not making a scene, right? Totally. Right. And I, I mean, I think that that's so, you know, basically what you're saying, which could be really interesting to see is like, so, you know, in, in my neighborhood of Fort Greene, there's this beautiful park, Fort Greene Park, and you, there are a few sort of smaller spaces on the park that as of right now, I think, you know, it's like it's like a tiny coffee shop or something. You could easily see if if the laws loosen a cocktail bar open, in which the majority of their business is selling those cocktails to go for people to drink in the park. Yeah, you know, and you see that you see that all over Europe, um, and you really you know you have not seen that here until this last month. And 
you're right. I mean, the amount of people that I see in the park on Friday and Saturday and Sunday afternoons who socially distancing are with their significant other or their family or whatever, and they're having a bottle of wine and it's pretty brazenly open has changed dramatically in the last four weeks. Everyone used to do it, but very discreetly. Now I think everyone's just like, fuck it. Yeah. Genie's yeah. out of the bag. I don't think it's going back. I don't either. Um, what else do you guys think is going to is gonna stay post uh, this corona quarantine? So I, this is not necessarily about um, the production side. So so this is more personal habit side. But I do wonder if, um, as people who are not necessarily ordering to-go cocktails or they're in a place where that's still not doable, um, as it is in some states and whatnot – I wonder if um, you know this is going to be a sort of return to the era. We're going to see a return to the era of the cocktail party, um, and and not that those didn't happen previously, but again to make another connection to the piece uh, that ran on Vine Pair, you know, it wasn't just speakeasies, but in part because of prohibition, you know, drinking was basically either um, in private, either in you know sort of these uh, underground clubs or in people's homes if you could kind of you know hide it well enough. I guess I don't know how how you know much scrutiny was paid to people who what they were doing in their own home. But I do think that, you know, if people are coming out of this period of quarantine, having, you know, learned a lot about how to make even relatively straightforward drinks like uh, Manhattan, you know, which I think a lot of people like Manhattans, but a surprising number maybe didn't know how to make them until the last few weeks. Um, I do think you're going to see that sort of return to like, uh, oh, well, you know, maybe we don't want to go out to a bar, but we do want to drink with friends and we're going to have them over. And you know what? We're going to make cocktails, you know, the, the, the way that. American entertaining really functioned in the 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Was was people came over and drank cocktails. They didn't come over and drink wine for the most part. You know, maybe they did if they were having dinner. And I do think we might see a return to to the cocktail party as a real thing. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm super excited about that or not. It's pretty easy to get real wasted at a cocktail party. But but I think that's something that will stick around is is the sort of home bartending that that had largely gone away in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you look if you look at the traffic on our site, for example, a lot of the most popular articles are about those those uh, cocktail projects that we've been discussing. You know, mm-hmm. ways to up your cocktail game. So people are investing a lot of time in this. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of time. What else are they going to do? You know, there's only so much Netflix you can watch. But uh, I think this they're going to have all of these new skills and they're going to want to share those like in real life with their friends. So I do agree that it's going it's going to come back. And I do also have that same hesitation as you do, which is all I want to see them do right now is go to bars and restaurants. I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting points in the article that uh, that a social psychologist made was, you know, if we take the the gas off of this social distancing and we go back to bars and restaurants too quickly, and then there's a second wave of infections and a second spike, then people actually may be in the long term more reluctant to go back to bars and restaurants like with the frequency that they did before. And that is one of the things that concerns me greatly right now. Right. Will we see, will we see an immediate run back and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, yeah. I, I think it could be bad. Yeah. Well, I think it's why we need to be kind of cautious. I know, like, like you said, I mean, as a person who at least nominally works in restaurants on this podcast, like I definitely certainly, you know, part of me wants to see people go back to the way things were right away. But, but I agree very much with that concern that, if there's sort of a too rapid a retreat from social distancing and people are suddenly like, ah, whatever, 
and we get another wave of this that's as bad or or even nearly as bad or worse, I, yeah, I think that the long term effects will be will be much 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 harder on the industry than if we come back slowly. We sort of say, okay, we're going to try and tiptoe our way back in, and maybe there are you know maybe we open with tables further spaced apart. Maybe we don't pack people into bars and nightclubs. Maybe we just sort of say, look, we're gonna we're gonna tiptoe into this and and with the goal of getting back to a pre COVID sort of um, normal C in a year as opposed to trying to do it in three yeah. months that that's probably better long term although it's hard to say well so here so here's the deal this this actually has brought up a bunch of people were talking about this on this uh group chain i'm on of a bunch of like ceos and things like that and it's a it's a very interesting thing to puzzle and that is and, and it is why i think ultimately the at-home cocktail party will be the the norm for the next year so unless this comes down from the federal government which we don't know if it will if we, when we reopen, if Zach, you open a restaurant and I go to your restaurant in the next few months and I get sick, are you liable? Should you have been checking people as they come in? Uh, what if it's someone who was on your kitchen crew? Or what if it was one of your wait staff? Or what if it was a SOM? Or what if it was just a random customer, but you just didn't know because they didn't present symptoms, but then I get sick and then I spread it? Right. Or someone has a big event where there's a huge concert and someone gets sick. And these are the conversations people are having right now because no one knows. Yeah. Right. Like we, we don't know and we don't know what everyone's liability is going to be. And the insurance industry has not been super helpful recently, as we all know. Shocking. Right. But so, <laughs> but so until we also understand that, I think there's going to be a lot of trepidation amongst both business owners and consumers to go back and forth. Because you kind of need to know, okay, well, what does happen? Like, is it on me? Are we basically saying, well, you're putting yourself at risk? Because if you're doing that, then you're basically saying to restaurateurs, only people that are are confident and feeling comfortable are going to come to you because we're, we basically told them as a society, it's at your own risk. Like when we say you swim at a beach without a lifeguard, right? Or are we saying, no, it's going to be on the establishment. They have to implement social distancing measures and they have to be checking the customers. And if they don't, it's on them. And then what risk are they taking on? So it's it's going to be really crazy to see, which is why like at least at a, at, you know, a home gathering, like unless you have a lot of asshole friends, if someone shows up at your house and gets sick, they're probably going to be less likely to go after you. And, be and how are they going to know where they got exactly. it anyway? I mean, that's just that's the craziness of it. Well, and I think the other part is, you know, the, the challenge for bars and restaurants in particular is it's not like it's an uh, environment where you can sit really easily social distance. You know, you, yeah. you can't wear a mask while you drink a cocktail and you can't, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine a lot of like, especially like New York City restaurants with tables, you know, six or eight feet apart. You know, that's that most of them could only fit three tables if that were the case. And so um, I think that it is really, yeah, you're right. The, the liability side is something I'm not qualified to talk about other than that. Yes, it is definitely a conversation that's come up even with, you know, sort of small operators that I've talked to, you know, they just, no one knows. And, and everyone is going to be eager on the one hand because, you know, they want to get back to what they love to do and what they do to make money and all that. But on the other hand, like there's still so many pieces to this that we don't understand. And that's why I think for the purposes of this conversation, you know, we really focused on, you know, sort of delivery at home, you know, sort of non uh, shared space uh, changes that have come about and that may persist for for a while, if not forever. 
And, you know, I think the last thing is I, I just, uh, you know, it's kind of like the PS of this whole thing. When I think about those socially distanced tables at restaurants and bars, there is just no way. Margins are thin enough when you've got people packed in like sardines. Like, how is that even going to work? There's just so many questions right now. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just going to take so many months, potentially years, just to untangle uh, new business models and really understand how to find a path forward for on-premise. Okay, we got to leave this on a happy note, guys. <laughs> I think the happy note is that, I think the conversation happy note is that like, I think a lot of these laws that we've all kind of wondered forever now, whether they would ever loosen, will. And I think that's a good, that's good ultimately for consumers. Right? I think consumers yeah. recognizing and, that- and for- Producers. Yeah, it's good for everybody, right? Us us realizing mm-hmm. that we can buy that Cru Beaujolais even if we live in a state in which we don't have a wine store that would sell it is awesome. Um, us realizing that, you know, we can now go out in a park and hopefully have a really great cocktail or bottle of wine or a beer without thinking that we're breaking a law that everyone breaks anyways, unless you're a person of color or another minority, right? Like we're just gonna let everyone finally do that is awesome. Um, and I think that, you know, if we can loosen up these laws as well to allow us to drink really great drinks made by really, you know, by amazing professionals, either at their location or somewhere else is a very good thing. Um, and hopefully all that stuff will happen. Yeah. We, Hey, we'll take silver linings anywhere we can find them right now. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, as, as always, we appreciate uh, everyone who tunes in every week to listen to the podcast and all the Corona conversations that we've been having over, uh, the last four weeks. Again, please drop us a line, podcast at vinepair.com. If you've got a subject you want us to talk about, shoot us an idea, someone we need to interview, please let us know. And as always, give us a review. It really helps people discover the show, whether you're listening to us on iTunes, where most of you are listening, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, or wherever else it is that you get podcasts. And Zach, Erica, always a pleasure. I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.